So as you see, the title tonight is How to Keep Going When You Can't. And somewhere in life, if you are indeed walking with Jesus, you're going to feel that. You're going to feel like, I'm not sure I can keep doing this. I signed up for heaven. (laughs) Not for this. A man packed his donkey and his horse and set out on a journey. Things went fine as long as the road was smooth. But as soon as they hit a hill, the donkey began to feel the weight of his burden and asked the horse if he would take some of the weight for him. The horse refused. And so as the hill went up, the donkey soon stumbled out of sheer exhaustion and fell down the side of the road and died. The man was dismayed. What, what, what am I going to do now? So he grabs the pack off of his now dead donkey and puts it on the horse. And as the story goes, also skinned the donkey and put that on top of the horse as well. So that now the horse groaned and complained as he had to carry twice as much burden as he did before and realized, had I only taken a little bit of the donkey's load, I would not now be carrying all of it. There's something there. There's something that happens within Christian, uh, within Christianity where we can so often neglect those who are crying out for help. We can say, I don't want to help you with that, but we don't realize that when we neglect, sometimes or somewhere down the road, the rest of everyone's going to end up taking more burden than if we share. Or we're not good at asking for help. And we expect people to kind of dig into our lives and figure it out because we think we're awesome. We want people to kind of get to know us more rather than being willing to open up and give out. We've all had this moment, maybe you have. Uh, I know someone in here has. They told me about a moment when they're at church and they say uh, hi to someone as they're walking by and say, how are you doing? I'm doing awful. Oh, great, good to see you. And they keep walking. A better example and one of the best outside of our text tonight is in the Lord of the Rings. And it's one of the best stories about spiritual warfare and how people work together against it. Frodo is tasked with this impossible mission of taking a ring which controls the evil of the world and throwing it into the fire from which it was created, the mountain of doom. And if he does it successfully, the evil will be defeated and good will forever reign on Middle Earth. It's a hard journey though. The ring wants to own him. Evil wants to own him. It wants to make him control the people around him. Finally, he realizes the danger is so great. The burden is so heavy. He doesn't want anybody else to have to carry it. So he breaks from the group on their way to Mountain Doom. And he takes the journey by himself, except for his best friend. Sam Gamgee says, you will not go alone, Master Frodo. And he pursues him and insists that Frodo cannot keep going unless he takes Sam with him. Sam tells him, you cannot go alone. You will never make it. Frodo finally relinquishes and says, fine, I see that you won't give up. You're coming with me. Turns out that as the story reaches the climax in the end, 
Frodo needed Sam on more than one occasion. At times, Sam was needed to carry Frodo himself, for the burden was too great for Frodo to walk on his own two feet. And as they get to Mount Doom, there's a part where Sam actually carries Frodo on his back. Friends, brothers and sisters, we cannot go alone. As we are in the wilderness... We have been liberated from sin, from the power of evil, which was Egypt in our book of Exodus. We've been delivered from that slavery and that bondage. And we are being led by God to the promised land where his purpose for us, his calling for us, and the power of his spirit in our lives and our ability to bear his fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, where these are happening and this abundantness of God is real and we are being used by him. That's the promised land for us in this room. We've been liberated from Egypt. We're going here. We know what God wants to do with us. We know that he has a purpose, but we spend a lot of time trying to find it. We spend a lot of time in the wilderness. And it's not necessarily that we never touch the promised land. Many of us have tastes of it. It might be a conference, a retreat, a really good worship service, or just a good time in your life. But we often step back into the wilderness and struggle. Others of us might be still going back to Egypt and tasting the things we left, and then hovering back in the wilderness and never getting life with God better than the wilderness. But we are here, and we are trying to find the steps necessary to get to the promised land. So after Israel crosses the Red Sea, we've looked so far at two very important things we need with us as we take steps through the wilderness. First, we have to sing. People who want to leave the wilderness are a singing people. They're singing about God's past victory, his present work, and his future purpose to use them in the promised land. Second, we must take the antidote to centeritis, that disease, that condition, which causes us to put ourselves at the center of the universe, want everything to serve us. Communion, we learn, as God gave Israel manna, bread to eat. Jesus said, that manna was me. And I'm giving myself now to everyone who follows me so that you have something to eat on your way to stop grumbling and complaining. We take communion regularly because we have to remember that Christ and the cross must be center in our lives if we want to keep moving through the wilderness. Singing the cross, communion, and tonight we find out that we need each other. Israel faces a foe named Amalek in the wilderness. Amalek is a people group. Ironically, not originally an enemy. They're descendants from Abraham, like Israel. It's just from another son. Amalek fights Israel in the wilderness. How does Israel succeed? How does Israel uh, survive? How do they move forward when this gets really, really tough? Well, let's look, shall we, at Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. 
Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. They argued with him and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you argue, quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled again against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, Ah, help! What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me, which is a very archaic form of killing somebody. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff, with which you struck the Nile. Remember when he turned it to blood? That staff. And go. Behold, verse 6. I, Yahweh, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And Moses did so. In the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place. Messah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means arguing or quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is he among us or not? So they're coming on hard times. And now they begin arguing with themselves. The arguing was so strong that they actually called that place argument. You have moments, you have times in your life where you remember them. You give them these, these categories in your mind. That was a time of depression or that was a time of fighting and quarreling and arguing. We have these seasons and this was so strong and bad that they call it that. And then they give it another name because they tested Yahweh and asked, is he with us or not? In other words, he's not doing what we expect him to do. So they still have the Ceneritis problem. They're still learning to gather the manna every day, to seek God every day, to depend upon him every day. We look at that because it sets up this next passage. So they're in the middle of doubting God and arguing with each other and with Moses. And then this, if it can't get any worse. Verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, now Joshua, we're going to see a lot in the future. He's going to be Israel's warrior. Um, We see him in action first right here. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up to the top of the hill. So there's three of them up on the hill while Joshua and the Israelites are fighting Amalek below. Now, whenever, verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Verse 11 is a wonderful war strategy. Now, he's holding the staff and all he's got to do is hold this up, his hands up. And Israel wins. It's pretty easy. This is like the easiest video game ever invented, right? I'm winning. But as soon as he stopped, he's like, ah, I got an itch right here. Oh, whoa, people are dying. Put it back up. 
so he realizes that this is what is making it happen. Now, an interesting note, there's some confusion on what is, this actually means. Because first, it was actually common to have war signals in which a general would be up at the hill and they would fly flags. That's how they communicate without the radio we have today. So if you want the archers to go, you fly a red flag. Archers go. Cavalry, green flag. You, you're communicating. Black, retreat, or whatever. It could be that Moses is giving signs from the staff up there. But I believe, although that may be one reason he's doing this, that the biblical picture of hands being lifted is always a picture of prayer. And that this is the power that Israel is using to fight Amalek. It's prayer. And when Moses ceases praying, the victory begins to recede into defeat. So we see the key. His hands need to be up. But in verse 12, Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone. This is now Aaron and Ur, took a stone and put it under him. And Moses sat on it while Aaron and Ur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So you can see Moses holding the staff like this. And now you got one guy holding your arm up here, the other guy holding your arm up there. So yeah, his hands might be incredibly numbed by sleep, right? <laughs> Falling asleep. But now somebody else can hold him up for him. And um, it's prevailing. He needed help. Moses needed help. 13. So the result is that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord or the banner of the Lord. And the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. How long is that generation to generation, this war with Amalek? I propose to you that that war was still happening when Nehemiah is building the wall of Jerusalem. Some thousand years after this, rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. And it says that the people had a mind to work, so they got the wall up to half its height. But then Sambalot and Tobiah come and make fun of the wall. And they threaten the people. And the people are scared to death. We cannot keep going, they tell Nehemiah. We cannot keep going. The rubble is too much. And there's too much threat from our enemies to kill us. They're halfway through and they want to quit. They can't keep going. Because the spirit of Amalek is at work in opposing Nehemiah and his people just as he opposes the Israelites from their journey to the promised land. I also propose to you that Paul is writing about the spirit of Amalek in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the armor of God, that we're to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace of the gospel, the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith, that with these you shall stand against the opposition of the enemy. So that this army of people called Amalek in our passage 
becomes an embodiment of the force that works against us to prevent us from moving out of the wilderness and into the promised land. It is not easy to become filled with God without facing resistance from the enemy. It is never an easy line. The minute we say, I am going for what God wants to do with me, I want to keep moving into his life. The moment you make that decision, you set up this proverbial target upon your chest. And the enemy says, you are someone I'm concerned with. You are someone I want to oppose. And Amalek thus becomes in our midst those forces that work to keep us from entering the promised land. You feel it. There are times you can't keep going. There are times you're wondering, is it worth it? There are times you've had to pour yourself out to somebody desperate for help. There are times that you have felt defeated by Amalek. It's real. Is there any relief? Yes, there is. And our passage shows us exactly what we need in order to keep going when Amalek makes it look like quitting is the only option. Moses cannot hold the staff of success. That stance of prayer, he cannot hold that alone. And his arms begin to droop and sag, and he can't do it. Moses, one of the greatest figures in the Bible, I need you to hear this. Moses, one of the greatest figures in the Bible, can't do it. Some of you look at pastors, you look at missionaries, you look at people that are mentors to you, people that seem to be further along in the spiritual life, and you think they can do anything. Moses can't do it alone. Nobody. And look, I don't care who you look up to, none of them are Moses. He's one of the... When Jesus is on a mountain being transfigured, he invites two people to see this, outside of his disciples. Moses and Elijah. Okay, that's the ranking we have going on. Moses can't do this alone. Moses is such an icon to Israel that Jesus has to essentially say, I am the new Moses in order for anybody to get the relevance and importance and severity of what he's doing when he's on earth. Moses can't do it alone. And you think you can? I can't do it alone. And you think you can? So Moses has Aaron and Ur, and we don't know a lot about Ur, but we do know that both Aaron and Ur are here. Aaron is Moses' brother, and they hold his arms up for him. Now Moses can do it. This is a picture of fellowship. This is one of the essential steps we need to get out of the wilderness and into the promised land. We must sing. We must celebrate with thanksgiving the cross of Jesus through communion. And we must hold each other's arms of prayer up in fellowship. Now, we're going to have people who become this amazing help that hold our arms up and enable us to move against Amalek when he comes. And we're going to be so thankful for those people. And you know what's going to happen is it's going to be very easy to say, they're my hero. I'm going to lean upon them. But just, let's get a little bit ahead of ourselves here. 
Pastor Mike, uh, in a couple of weeks, will be teaching us about the golden calf. And you know who's responsible for that? Big step backward. Aaron and Ur. <laughs> so here Moses is being helped up by Aaron and Ur. And then these two very people are going to let him down later on. Okay, we need to understand something now. We can't do it alone, but we also can't just depend upon people to do it for us. Because the very people who are helping you now very likely are going to fail you later. And this is important to see when it comes to fellowship, because sometimes we're all gung-ho on fellowship. This, this idea of Christians coming together and praying together and being with one another and eating together and hanging out together and encouraging one another. We're all gung-ho on that as long as they're holding our hands up. But as soon as they let go and we feel let down, pff, I don't like those people anymore. I'm moving on to these people that hold their promises to me. And then all of a sudden, the very fellowship we were experiencing that helped us advance, we're giving up on just because people acted like people. Are you really surprised? This is something that we have to realize. That yes, fellowship is very important and valuable, but you cannot, you cannot reject the fellowship that God puts next to you right now. Because if you're rejecting the Aaron and Ur who are next to you, just because they might let you down or have, you don't understand fellowship. Fellowship is getting together with people, not just like you, not just people that have fun like you, but people that are simply with you, whoever's with you, because the church is a body and the church must celebrate our differences, not just our likenesses. Wow, yes. <laughs> fellowship is not, and we kind of, because we throw the word around, right? We have Monday night football fellowship. Well, we don't, but some Maybe we can, if someone wants to start that. Um, but, you know, you, you'll hear something like Monday Night Football Fellowship. Um, okay, it's good. Anytime we get together throughout the week, throughout our promised land meetings, <laughs> anytime we're together in the wilderness in between, that's a good thing. But let's not confuse just rubbing shoulders as fellowship. Because often what we do is we get together with people that are like us people that like us. But real fellowship comes when we realize that this person may not be like me, but I can actually gain a lot from them. And one of the beautiful things I see is I'm seeing a lot of different ages in here, and we have a lot of youth over here too. Those aren't always, com aren't always compatible, are they? But man, do they need us and man, do we need them. We need their energy. They need your wisdom. We can't just have men's breakfast. That's a good form of fellowship. But it's all men. And you, they're all actually pretty much the same age. What about, what about the young boys that need the men at men's breakfast? We can't just have women's Bible study because it's all women. What about the single mothers that are working during the day that can't get to a woman's Bible study during the day? Uh, where are we meeting that need? Um, what about the person that um, works at 5 a.m. so they can't go to men's breakfast, right? What, so we, we often set up fellowships, but they're always people like us. We need Aaron and Ur's with us 
whoever and wherever they are. We need to learn how we can learn from each other. Fellowship is truly a great coming together of all different kinds of people, which is, by the way, the point of Ephesians when it goes into spiritual warfare. Um, Ephesians is all about Paul trying to get people who aren't like each other to be with each other, Jews and Gentiles. And then he closes it with this whole thing about the armor of God and spiritual warfare, because the true spiritual warfare, the true attack of Amalek is to get us to argue and to doubt the presence of God in our midst. Amalek's goal is to isolate. Amalek doesn't necessarily care if he crushes everyone to the ground. Amalek just cares that Israel doesn't move forward. Amalek's not about kill count. Amalek is about breaking fellowship. And if Amalek can get Israel's quarreling with one another about who didn't fill the gap there and who wasn't ready for that surprise attack and who didn't have the muffins over there at this one fellowship meeting and who didn't pray for, and you know, we dropped the ball, right? We dropped the arms. We let people down. Amalek just wants Christians not to be together. He wants them isolated. And brothers and sisters, I'm a fan of technology. Let's just get this out of the way, okay? I'm a fan of it. Many of us are beneficiaries of technology. And if you say that you're not, and you're not into the whole iPhone thing and all these other things that scare you, like the internet, you drive a car. You just forgot that that's technology, okay? We are all fans of technology. Some of us just like some forms, and some of us don't like other forms. One of the things that technology does, no matter what form it is, is the more technology we have, the less dependent upon people we become. And of course, we all like to harp on like cell phones because that's the great example of what I'm talking about. I can be on my phone in a room full of people and be 100% alone. I mean, that's a strange phenomena today. There was a time when you were with people where people were your entertainment. The people with you were the only way to make the downtime interesting. And people found people interesting. They would ask questions about each other's lives. It would be so much more than that. How are you? Great. I see your age. I see your clothing. And I know that you're Calvinist. So that's all I'm going to talk. Like, <laughs> sometimes this is how Christians assess one another. But look, we need to learn to find each other interesting. This person's different than me. That means there's a lot I can learn about them. Not, oh, well, they're just different than me. I'm going to hang out with people that are like me. Really, that's a lot of good personal growth. You're going to keep looking at the mirror? <laughs> Wonderful. Keep perfecting that. Um, others of us want to, though, keep branching out and asking questions and getting to know each other and going deeper and finding out how we can hold each other's arms up. That is how we grow. And that's how we begin to see this amazing fellowship, this amazing body of Christ coming together. But Amalek wants us instead to isolate ourselves. And how much do we miss because we are rushing, uh, well, some people might be watching Sunday night football. I mean, how many times, that's fine, you know, they might have fellowship elsewhere. But like, how many times do we choose these things that encourage isolation, make us feel happy? Oh, I don't have to deal with hard people. This is so fun. I'm at home in my PJs. Like, yeah, we all need those nights. But how many times are we turning down help? people that we can rely on and people that we can help in favor of being isolated and seeking our own desire. How many times? I mean, I'm just asking. 
Think about you right now in the midst of your battle against Amalek. Who's winning there? You know because you're either on the mountain alone and you're beginning to feel like you can't keep going and the arms are dropping or you know you can keep going because brothers and sisters are igniting a fire and passion in you and you know that there's a team of people that are there for you at the drop of that cup. (laughs) They're there for you. So are you on your hill alone? Are we opening our lives to allow other people on that hill? And furthermore, are we allowing people different than us? And what are you doing with the people who've let you down? Are we rectifying that? Are we just writing them off? Amalek wants you to do that. So there's something powerful about fellowship in which And this is what you will discover. When Moses is feeling Aaron and Ur, they're holding his hands up. You have three people. But what I've learned about the power and this mysterious thing about the church is that when the church is together in fellowships, it's not just one plus two equals three. Fellowship is not a formula like that where, okay, I've got a couple people with me now. Fellowship, one plus two does not equal three because Jesus says in Matthew 18 verse 20, that when two or more are gathered together, there I am in their midst. Now, that means that when the church begins to get together, it's not just count us up and now we're that much more powerful. There's something exponentially bigger than that going on because now the Spirit is moving in a different way when we're together. There's something we can't put our finger on that's more powerful when we worship and sing together, when we pray and plead to God together. Something that is fundamentally more powerful than when you do that at your home by yourself. Right? So there's the people that want to, well, I can sing worship songs at home. I can pray at home. I can read my Bible and read commentaries at home. And you can. Some of us need that because we grow better that way but you are not experiencing the power of having errands and errs in your midst. And you're not feeling that one plus two equals 1,000. That's what fellowship brings to the table. Christian fellowship is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, I get together and I play cards with you. Three of us. That's just three of us. I mean, great. I know God is everywhere with us, but there's something about the spirit and the way he moves when Christians come together to pray. When they come together and want Christ in the center, that's when one plus two does not equal three. Have we experienced that? Are we making room for that? That's how we keep going when we can't keep going. Take a moment to go to Ephesians 6, please. Ephesians 6. Middle of the New Testament. If you find Corinthians, you find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians 6. Verse 10, finally, 
in um, Greek writing, there's a thing called rhetoric, which it was just the art of how to be persuasive. Paul was a master at rhetoric. He's using typical Greek rhetoric here with the word finally in verse 10, 610. Um, this is the final emotional appeal. That's what good rhetoricians would do, a final emotional appeal. So he's done this whole argument. This is my last emotional appeal, guys. Please do this. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, that's New Testament, right? That's how Paul's talking about it. You might as well just say Amalek because it's the same situation. Israel is facing Amalek, which is the schemes of the devil hindering their progress into the promised land. We're in the same boat. Paul sees that we still fight Amalek to this day. Put on the home of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, this is what we must understand. Amalek does not want Christian fellowship. So Paul has to remind us of this verse in 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We read this all the time, but you have to stop and think about how profound that is. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Israel was wrestling, arguing, bickering, quarreling with one another when they didn't have water. And people began doubting God and saying, Moses is not a good leader. So much so they called the place quarreling. Israel did not understand the forces at work behind the scene that was trying to oppose their entrance into the promised land. So Israel did what all common people do, is we point the finger at the closest flesh and blood we can see. The person who said those hurtful words, it's their fault. Not the Amalek or the devil working behind that. Do you see? Paul needs us to understand that people will let us down. They will say hurtful things. They will stand in our way. They will break their promises. They will shatter our dreams. But we cannot begin pointing the finger at one another. Yes, in the church wide, we can't keep pointing our finger at different groups of Christendom. But within ourselves, we cannot keep pointing the finger at brothers and sisters, people in the room. As it happens, it will happen Someone will say something because they're just people. And it will touch something soft within you that makes you angry. And at that moment, Amalek has entered into the battlefield. What am I going to do with that anger? Am I going to realize that that person wasn't literally trying to hurt me, but maybe the devil is using those words and making me think of them in a different way so that I would be angry at that person? Is it possible that spiritual warfare was behind that person, threw a dart at me and hid behind him? So see, he did it. You've done that as a kid, haven't you? Thrown the thing at the kid in class and said, it was him. That's that, brothers and sisters, is the childish warfare that the devil plays. He will do something to tick us off or to hinder us or to make life frustrating. And then he'll say, it was Bill. Sorry, Bill. It was, Bob. It was Manfred. <laughs> and we buy it every time, don't we? We get upset with the person who said it or did it or let us down. So what Paul calls us into is maintain fellowship because if you do you will see that there's something deeper than the people next to you going on 
So then he tells us, uh, okay, so we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, and now here are the forces that work against our entering the promised land, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is something that is not flesh and blood that will attack us through flesh and blood. And Paul says, know your enemy. It is never clothed in human skin. So that's when he tells us to take up the whole armor of God, which is for another study. But I want us to see the point that Paul says, fight. Fight for fellowship. Don't fight against one another. Never said that. Never did Paul say those people in Philippi have got it a little too charismatic. He instead says, fight for one another, not against one another. We must stand tall. So he goes on and describes the armor of God, which many have pointed out, describes the uniform that a Roman soldier would wear. Here's what is so cool, is that the Roman army was the most advanced army the world has ever seen, which is why they're able to take over the world. They had the money to power the steel. They had the tactics that could take over barbarians. And most importantly, when they took that steel and armor and the tactics and put it together, Rome was virtually impenetrable. They could not be stopped. If they marched in line side by side with their shields and their armor and their archers and their cavalry, as long as they marched together, no army on earth had the power to stop them. Now, if you could divert them, confuse them, get half the army going that way, another half that way, and then break them up from there, and you get a lot of lone rangers, you could pick off the lone rangers because the armor doesn't cover everything. The armor only created a wall when the army stood side by side. And part of what Paul wants us to know is that the enemy wants us not to be connected. But when we are connected, we are unstoppable. One commentator even went as far to say that it's believed that the shields themselves had little hooks in which would connect one shield to another, to another, to another, so that if someone did come and try to do Red Rover, you know that game? (laughs) Did come and try to break through the lines, it was not dependent upon each individual to be strong, but the whole unit to be strong to keep the person from the first line. We have an incredible armor that God's given us, and he's asking us to have fellowship. This does not have to be complicated. We just need to hold each other up. And then Amalek does not stand a chance. So how can we fight for fellowship? What can we do when we feel like quitting? How do we keep going? Uh, just real simple. What Aaron and Ur did with Moses is what I want to propose we should do. First, you noticed in verse 12, we're back in Exodus, of course. Moses' hands grew weary. This got me for a while. 
Your arms are growing weary. So what does it say? So they grabbed a stone to put under him. Uh, thanks, guys. My legs are fine. It was my arms. <laughs> you kind of read that. You're like, what is going on? Well, the stone is very important, obviously, because um, if my hands are way up here, we don't know how high or short these people are. But if, you know, if it's Pastor Mike's arms, I might need a little stool to reach up and help him. Uh, but by sitting on... <laughs> I'm not sure that was amenable, but okay. <laughs> by sitting on a stone, uh, his arms are now at the level of Aaron and her. So they don't have to like hold it up and then their arms get tired. What's going to happen then? No, they could just rest on the shoulder, right? So it's just very practical. But also, um, you know, you don't want Moses' legs to go out either. But here's what the Lord spoke to me on this too. It's that we need to find a stone to sit on. We must sit on a stone because victory is not the same thing as activity. Victory is not the same thing as activity. Sometimes we feel under attack. We feel like we can't keep going. So we say, well, I'm just going to push harder. I'm just going to do more. We do not need more activity when the problem is that we're getting tired. We need to find a stone to sit on. Sometimes we don't have the proper help. We don't have Aaron and Ur. We don't have fellowship holding our arms up because you are moving too fast for anyone to bump into you. Have you ever heard the person say, I don't have time for Bible study or I don't have time for that gathering or I'm just too, we haven't been in church because we've been so busy. Hmm. That's why you can't keep going. We must find a stone to sit on. And the group of you tonight have found one. I pray that, I'm, that this is somewhat, you know, sitable. Um, but we have to find other ways too. When we get tired, sometimes we just have to stop. We are Americans, which means we, well, want to make stuff and do stuff. It's a country of opportunity. You are what you make yourself to be. But that's not the gospel. So when we feel like quitting, we want to be the ones that pull out. We want to be the hero and say, we made it. There is no lone ranger in the gospel. We must sit still so that others can then carry us. We're the people that talk about saved by grace, not by works. And yet, you know how we live? Works. And then how dare someone help us? How dare God tell us to stop being busy and let him do something? We, we preach grace at salvation, then we're all about, ah, whatever, grace. I mean, how many pastors do this? <laughs> pastors are running around their heads cut off half the time because why? That's a great question. Um, we're not good at modeling the grace of God. We're good at modeling the works of man, even though we would argue otherwise. Find a stone and sit on it because sometimes we have to stop if you want to keep going. So one, sit on a stone. Second, you'll notice that after they found a stone for Moses to sit on, uh, it said, he sat on it, while Aaron and Ur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So we talked a little bit here about, yeah, it's probably battle tactic, the whole staff. Um, but the outstretched arms is, to me, prayer, because for us, our warfare is not strategy. 
Our warfare is not tactics. Our warfare is not tweet something meaner. Or let me rephrase that maybe. Um, Respond to what they said about us by saying they're stupid too. Like these are not the tactics of the church in warfare. Yet we see a lot of people revert to these tactics, don't we? Our tactics, our warfare is prayer. Our warfare is prayer. That's the way that we won't retaliate against flesh and blood. That's the way that we won't meet violence with violence or aggression with aggression. We learn to turn away a rash answer with a gentle word by prayer. We learn how to absorb people's anger and turn it into peace like Jesus did on the cross by prayer. Prayer is that moment when we stop having to do it ourselves and wait for God to act. Prayer is that moment of admission that there's nothing left we can do. We can't go forward anymore. So God, we need you to move forward. That's what prayer is. In a country, uh, yeah, a country of quarreling, our country is full of quarreling right now. In the people of Israel where they're quarreling and Amalek comes in, they need to stop raising their fists in anger and stop pointing their fingers in arguments and start raising their hands in prayer. That's their way forward. So second, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 8, I desire that in every place men pray with their arms up without quarreling or anger. Paul knows people. And the implication is this is happening in Ephesus. They get together like, oh, what's up, man? Why did you let me down the other day? Why did you say that? Did you hear what the dumb Caesar said about things and the policy he wants to put in place? And we throw our hands up all the time for anything but prayer. And Paul says, stop this. Stop the quarreling. Stop the, is God in this place or not? And start putting your hands up like Moses and holding each other's hands up and praying. It's the only way forward. So um, sit on a stone and hold hands. They're holding Moses' hands. We do hold hands and when we have group prayer. At least at dinner we do. Sometimes we don't, but it's okay. It's just the idea. It's just the picture that when we do the whole praying, holding hands, it's the, the picture of unity, the picture of reaching out, the picture of connectedness. And the early church had this beautiful practice where they would, after, they, uh, well, after the message, they would have the kiss of peace where, yes, you literally got up and you exchanged a kiss with one another. It would be a little awkward today, but they did. And actually, it's kind of, um, you would wonder, how did that work? Well, sometimes it didn't work. There were actually some early church fathers who wrote against the passionate kissing that would happen. So, yes, yes, there was risk, but that's what they did. Because imagine you trying to kiss somebody you've been arguing with. Somebody you can't hold their arms up. Can you do that? The other church would find out real quick who they could and could not get along with because you can't kiss somebody you have something against. I can do the whole one arm hug, you know. I can do the little hey and smile. It's not that hard to fake a smile, but it's really hard to fake kissing somebody. Now, I'm not advocating we do that. <laughs> Application tonight. Let everyone stand up. No, uh, I'm not advocating that. But we need to find checks. Like, if there's something you would not do for someone or with someone, you may not be in fellowship with them. 
So holding hands, the early church having the kiss of peace, and after the kiss of peace, they would then know they're ready to pray. They would not pray till they did the kiss of peace because they had to know that they were all unified. And only when they're unified would they stand up and pray with one another with their arms outstretched, something like this. That was the posture of prayer in the early church. And then they would say, and the records say, that prayer was a very noisy event. And that people were drawn to the early church because prayer was powerful. And when in a world where you had very little control, they're not Americans, they had very little control over circumstances and over their political, over the politics and over their economic situation and their job. They had very little control over much of life. They found the power to keep going in the prayer of the church. Brothers and sisters, if we can't hold hands and pray, if we can't have fellowship with all of us in here, our prayers will never be powerful because our arms will continually sag. We want to see the church powerful in the world today on this mountain. It must be a church that is willing to hold hands up with each other. Otherwise, what are we kidding? We're just a club with songs and talkers. And we have a book. And we happen to just study the same one every time. So let's depend on one another. Let's reach out to one another. Let's sit on stones, hold hands, and remember that the enemy is not flesh and blood, but the force trying to keep us out of the promised land. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, your church is clearly under attack from the enemy. We see that in a, in a large picture, how hard it is for us to just say, hey, let's hold hands, instead of argue, instead of pointing at each other's faults, or overusing the word heresy, 